my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. A quick note to our listeners. This episode contains discussions of abuse and sexual assault. At times, the details are graphic and they're hard to listen to. But the story, it's an important one to hear. He was a progressive liberal hero. He was also seen publicly as a champion of women. So what was especially hypocritical and shocking and gaslighting was the behavior that he sought to legislate against was the type of behavior that he inflicted on his partners in private. And because he was a very powerful politician, he was the top law enforcement officer in the state of New York, and he was in the national spotlight at the time that I was with him, who knew what he would do if I told others about what I was experiencing. But this is why I feel like somehow the universe intended for me to have my path intersect with Eric Schneiderman and then end a pattern of violence with his intimate partners that had been going on for a very long time, with many people knowing about it. In May 2018, The New Yorker published a story that would take down one of the most powerful men in New York. The man was Eric Schneiderman. At the time, he was the state's attorney general, someone who stood up to Trump and for women's rights, or so we thought. What many didn't know was that behind closed doors, he allegedly did the opposite. Verbally, emotionally, and physically, he allegedly abused multiple women. Women that on the surface, it would appear he loved. One of those women was Tanya Selvaratnam. She met Schneiderman at the Democratic National Convention in 2016 and was instantly charmed. But very quickly, she says, the relationship began to shift. I'm Stephanie Rule, MSNBC anchor, NBC News senior correspondent, and this is Modern Rules, a podcast from NBC Think and iHeartRadio.
Tanya says that she got caught in a situation that too many women find themselves in. Strong, smart, successful women drawn to successful men and then suddenly trapped, unable to escape. So what pushed her to get out of this relationship and share her story with the world? She writes about that in her new book, Assume Nothing. Tanya is here today to share her story. And for that, I'm grateful. Tanya, thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. If you could sort of take us back, tell us about your experience, how this relationship even began. It started beautifully. When he first came up to me and started asking questions, it turned out that we had both gone to Harvard. We both had studied Chinese. We both had spent time in China. We were also both interested in spirituality and meditation. I mean, it was a nerdy flirtation, but also the fact that he was a politician who meditated was intriguing to me. And then it started just as a normal dating relationship. We met in 2016 at the Democratic National Convention. When he first approached me, it felt too good to be true. He was so adoring and complimentary and supportive. And it started like a fairy tale. But then the darkness started to seep in as time went by. The controlling behavior, isolating me, the abusive language, the criticism, and then the physical violence started to emerge in the sexual context. And so when the abuse started emerging, yes, I was living with him. And because of the turbulent times, after the election, after the former president took office, Eric Schneiderman became the leader of the Democratic attorneys generals around the country who were standing up to Trump. The national spotlight was on Eric Schneiderman more than ever before. And at the time that it was happening, I thought the abuse was specific to me, as so many victims do. But then I realized through word of mouth and through friends that I was not the first, and I realized that I wouldn't be the last. I am so grateful that you wrote this book, that you're telling this story. You said that at first, domestic violence didn't look like what you expected it to. Explain that. When it first happened, it happened in the blink of an eye. It happens at night, when it's dark, when you're naked. But then over time, the slaps became harder and the abusive language in the sexual context also became more dark. The slave terminology, criticizing my skin, my scars. I have scars that run up and down my torso from surgery. I began to feel like I was in hell, but it was still at that time hard for me to know how to navigate it. I never thought that I would be one of those women who got caught up in an abusive relationship. I had never been in one before. As a child, I grew up witnessing horrific domestic violence, and I stood up to my own father. The domestic violence that I experienced as an adult looked different. He would slap me hard. He would try to choke me. And it happened only during the sexual context, the physical violence. But the common thread between what I witnessed as a child and as an adult was the coercive control, was the making me always feel like I was less than, 
But part of why you stay is that there's the yo-yo effect where sometimes you're made to feel like you are making mistakes all the time. Other times you're made to feel like you are the greatest thing that has happened to your abusive partner. It takes a series of steps to break even fierce women down. And it happens with that entrapment and isolation and the gaslighting and the coercive control that by the time the physical violence emerges, it's like you're not yourself. And when I started to open up to friends and to experts, I realized that what I went through was an experience that millions of women and men share and that I should not be ashamed. People often don't understand the idea of being trapped, especially when it's someone who on their own is successful, is educated. You write in the book that you want to shift the perception of what a victim looks like. So what does a victim look like? A victim looks like all of us. And the more that victims and survivors and thrivers share their stories, the more we can chip away at the conditioning that normalizes the cycle of violence that we are forced to accept from the time that we are born. You know, we are conditioned to think that if a boy teases us in the playground, that he likes us. And that's wrong. So the book kind of reconditions our notions of masculinity. And I really hope that men read the book. You know, the narrative, the thriller draws the reader in. And then the appendix provides the reader with resources to stop and spot and prevent intimate partner violence. In you telling this story, you're reliving your trauma, right? Many times we're told you experience something traumatic and you move on. And it was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in talking about the January 6th attack, saying someone who's a victim faces that trauma over and over. You're putting yourself in a position where you're facing that trauma every day that you work on writing this book, that you talk about it. How hard is that? Writing the book was painful and emotional. And I was so grateful when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez shared her story of assault. It resonated for millions of people. We have to chip away at the patriarchy and white supremacy, which is very much intertwined with why violence is so normalized. But even though the writing was painful, ultimately it's full of hope because I do feel like by sharing our stories, we begin to open doors that didn't exist before for us to heal. When you knew you wanted to get out of this relationship, how did you start making those motions? It's hard when you are in an abusive relationship to see a way out. And in my case, it was especially hard to see a way out because I was with a very powerful man. But I vividly remember the conversation I had with a friend when I told her that things were not going so well. And she just started asking questions. And I feel like that's something that everyone can do if they suspect that a friend or loved one is in an abusive relationship, is ask questions that elicit answers. So the more questions she asked led to more answers. And then she asked, 
does he hit you? How hard was it for you to answer that? Because once you said yes, you couldn't take it back. Yes, and that was the first time I couldn't take it back. She is like my sister, one of my closest friends. Because she asked me a question, I was not going to lie to her. I did not plan to tell her that he hit me. I just planned to tell her that I was going through a hard time. But because she asked me the question and I answered yes, I just said yes. And she said, mm-hmm. And she said, Tanya, I want you to talk to somebody. And she connected me with a domestic violence expert. And after speaking with that domestic violence expert, there was no going back. She said, I just could never see him or be with him again. And I felt fortunate that I had a great support network and I had work. And also I had my financial independence. I think a lot of reason why women stay in abusive relationships is because they are financially dependent on the man. Whereas I had friends who were telling me, get out, leave, drift, don't think about him. And the domestic violence expert also said to me, Tanya, you think that you're the only one this has happened to and that the abuse was specific to you because he customized it so well. The way he criticized my scars, my hair, my breasts. She said, you are probably part of a pattern. But then a cosmic thing happened, which is right after he and I parted ways, the Harvey Weinstein story broke and the Me Too movement began. We'll be back after the break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey, everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Here's a clip from an upcoming episode featuring the weekly home checks, Keyshawn Lane, that you won't want to miss. 
a common mistake that a lot of people do. They use fabric softener when it's not so great for your clothes. Should we never be using fabric softener? No, you should not ever be using oh. fabric softener. Oh. It leaves a deposit on our clothes, which is also left in the machine. And it also makes the clothes highly flammable. Wait, what? <laughs> yes. What you want to do instead is just use a quarter cup of vinegar. And that'll make them softer? That'll make them softer. And if you wanted some kind of scent, you can use essential oils. Wow, wow, wow. Catch new episodes of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult every other Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. So then what did you do? Because I feel like you're taking me down a path where over the course of a year, you went from your weakest self to your strongest self. What happened is I finally went and got my things from his apartment and I went with two friends. We swooped up all my things and multiple garbage bags and suitcases. One of the friends came back with me in a car and she said to me, you can't be the first person that he has done this to. And she's an investigative reporter. Within 24 hours, she discovered a previous girlfriend who had been almost a decade before me, who had an eerily similar story. It was in that moment that I realized I was definitely part of a pattern. The fact that I found out less than 24 hours after getting all my things from his place made me shake. And my reporter friend, she said, I want you to talk to a lawyer. And she connected me with Robbie Kaplan. And we talked through various scenarios, a civil suit, an ethics complaint. But I realized that because in my situation, which was different from other situations with perpetrators being outed, I was dealing with somebody who was still in political power and who was the attorney general of New York State. So to enter the legal system or law enforcement system where the person who I'm accusing is in charge of that system, it felt like an incredibly risky and dangerous move. You decided you were still going to do something. Even if you weren't going to go the legal route, no charges were ever filed. At that point, you were determined to take action in some form. I was determined to take action so that he couldn't do to another woman what he did to me and what he did to this previous girlfriend whom I discovered. And I had a very laser focused objective, which is to warn other women and prevent him from harming other women. In my particular instance, because of who my abuser was and how long his pattern had been going on and how long it had been enabled by other people in power, I felt that the court of public opinion was going to be my best route for ending the cycle of violence that he had been perpetrating for a long time. On the day that Ronan Farrow's story broke about Harvey Weinstein in The New Yorker, so this was subsequent to the story that Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor broke in The New York Times, on that day, this was in early October, Eric reached out to me 
by email. And I knew in that moment with great clarity that he knew he had done something very wrong. He was in the center of it as a hero. He became a key figure in the Me Too movement. And I remember the moment that that story broke. Suddenly I knew that my story was somehow going to become part of this reckoning that Me Too brought about. Did you want it to be part of it? I didn't want it to be part of it. I was so focused on healing and recovery at that point. But then as Eric became more and more public about being an ally of the Me Too movement, he was filing legal cases against Harvey Weinstein. I submitted myself to the process of investigative journalism after I spoke with David Remnick of The New Yorker and then Jane Mayer was assigned to the story. And then Ronan Farrow also became a reporter on the story. Did you fear that he could hurt you, whether it was physically or publicly? I mean, the power and influence he had, especially at that time, cannot be overstated. This is why I say America's getting out of an abusive relationship. It's like we're so conditioned to worship false prophets because they're in positions of power or because they're very talented people and they're very damaging for society. And I knew very deeply that one cannot be a champion of women publicly and abuse them privately. And the political outcome was extraordinary, which was that New York has its first female and Black attorney general in Letitia James. So the transformation of the political landscape, that was not an intention, but it was something that made me realize how important it is to share our truths because they might result in outcomes that really do improve. You know, behind every perpetrator, there is usually an enabler. And sadly, Many of those enablers are women. In some cases, their own power is entangled with the power of this abusive man. In some cases, this abusive man is their conduit to power. So there were multiple women. I know their names. I'm not going to say them now. I don't want them coming after me, who are very powerful, who were trying to discredit the New Yorker story and who were trying to discredit me behind the scenes in the months after it came out. Once the story came out, did you hear from him or his team? After the story came out, immediately, Governor Cuomo announced that there would be a special prosecutor put on the case. And I never heard from Eric Schneiderman again. The investigation kicked in immediately. The outcome was that the bar was too high for there to be criminal charges, but the special prosecutor made a statement that she believes the women's stories, and also that she was proposing new legislation about this type of abuse, about strangulation and physical violence without consent. Uh, and also Eric Schneiderman himself made a statement where he apologized for the harm that he had inflicted and that he was in rehab and getting help. It was extraordinary that you had the strength to leave there's this bizarre 
attachment between being a victim and feeling shame around it. Did you feel that? And did that change over time? Because as you're speaking, I can sort of feel your power building. (laughs) I didn't set out to write a thriller, which many people have described it as. I wrote what happened, but I'm glad when I hear that response because it was a scary time and it was a roller coaster of a time. I'm hopeful that a lot of men read the book and I hope that high school students read the book. One in four women and one in 10 men will experience some form of sexual violence during their lifespan. And many of those experience that violence before they turn 18. So there needs to be increased education and awareness and also increased legislation so that, like what had happened in my case, that there are repercussions for this type of harm. After an investigation, charges were not filed against Schneiderman. The Nassau County District Attorney said at the time she believed the women, but legal issues, including statutes of limitations, stopped them from prosecuting the former Attorney General. After that decision, Mr. Schneiderman released a statement writing in part, quote, I recognize that District Attorney Singus's decision not to prosecute does not mean I have done nothing wrong. I accept full responsibility for my conduct in my relationships with my accusers and for the impact I had on them. After spending time in a rehab facility, I'm committed to a lifelong path of recovery and making amends to those I have harmed. I apologize for any and all pain that I have caused, and I apologize to the people of the state of New York for disappointing them after they put their trust in me. On this podcast, we like to leave you with something to think about. And something Tanya left me thinking about was this. The Me Too movement shined a spotlight on workplace abuse and abuse by many powerful men, famous men. But as Tanya noted, victims, they can be anyone. Often violence happens in one's own home or with a committed partner. And the stigma surrounding this kind of violence, this kind of abuse, it exists in a big way. Many women don't feel like they can share their story or escape the bad situation they're in. Many outsiders don't consider it a prison. We don't understand the paralysis. Oftentimes, victims blame themselves for getting into those relationships to begin with. So does there need to be a Me Too part two? A reckoning on intimate violence? A close look at what a victim actually looks like? And a shift in what we think acceptable behavior is? Because all of this could hopefully, ultimately, help us create a world where women are a whole lot safer. I'm Stephanie Rule, and you're listening to Modern Rules, a podcast from NBC Think, MSNBC, and iHeartRadio. This podcast is hosted by me, Stephanie Rule. Mike Biet and Katrina Norvell are executive producers. Meredith Bennett-Smith is senior editor for NBC Think and our editorial lead. The podcast is engineered and edited by Josh Fisher. Additional production support provided by Charles Herman, Rachel Rosenbaum, and Lauren Wynn. And special thanks to Catherine Kim, our global head of digital news, right here at NBC News and MSNBC. For more thought-provoking analysis, visit NBCNews.com slash think. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans... 
Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Oh. Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B.